All right. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're continuing with discipleship. It's been a few weeks since we've talked about it, so just want to have a refresher. Some people may have not have heard this. Don't want folks lost in the middle of this. We've been dealing with discipleship, and our approach is really on the screen, definition, terminology, significance, requirements, ingredients, perspectives. Now, we've been dealing with this, but it's basically a bus tour of these things. We're not delving deep into it to do that. We would just have to say, well, we're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, because that is the range of discipleship. So it's a bus tour. It's a few things here and there. We looked at the definition briefly when we talk about discipleship. Obviously, the term disciple is there. So what, what ballpark are we in? And a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus. And I want to mention that this definition is not drawn from a lexicon. You can't go to a lexicon and get this definition. And if you're unfamiliar with the Greek, you might think, well, gosh, lexicons are... If you're not going to that, what are you doing, Steve? When you look at, uh, at words and the usage of words, um, just like us, you could, go, you could say something, I could, or I could say something, I could say, I used to be a cool surfer, used to be emphasis. Um, and so I used to be cool. Uh, can you go to a dictionary and, and understand what I mean by cool? Well, cool means cold. Steve said he was cold. Did he surf in the winter? Did he surf in Alaska? And so we have to be careful how we use dictionaries. Um, <clears throat> it's word usage that matters. It's how I use the word that determines really its meaning. Now, if I use the word completely distant from things, it's not going to convey meaning to you, but in what they would call the, the semantic range of a word, um, it's not so much the dictionary definition that gives you possibilities. It's how things are actually used. So if you were to look up a, <clears throat> a Greek lexicon, what does disciple mean? It simply means a follower, a learner. But in the Gospels, this is, this is sort of broadened in a sense that the, the definition becomes more alive and more real and more, more full and more rich. So a disciple isn't just a follower. A disciple is a follower of Jesus and his teachings. That is included. And it's especially, he's a, a disciple is a follower of Jesus and, and his teachings, especially as presented in the Gospels and Acts because that's where the word is used. It's not found in the epistles. So what is a disciple? An active following of Jesus, a personal attachment to Jesus, a submission learning, submissive learning from Jesus, and a comprehensive obedience to Jesus. That is what a disciple is. We don't follow church leaders, and I just want to reemphasize this again, because when, when we're in a day when uh, counseling is just elevated and mentoring is elevated. Um, it's not that those things are invalid, but just you don't really see a lot of that in the Bible. You just don't. You kind of think, well, that's what's in the Bible, but no, that's what's in the modern American church. That's not what's in the Bible. <clears throat> Doesn't make it wrong, but we ought to pause and go, okay, you know, maybe there's something in the Bible that's more fundamental. And, and the problem with having <clears throat> a lot of that stuff um, is it can tend toward people becoming followers of other people. I can say, oh, I'm going to go disciple somebody. I'm like, and I've said that before, by the way. So 
No, <laughs> I can pick on myself here. It's, that's really not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be making people disciples of Jesus. Okay. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so celebrity ministries and things like that, just, you know, as Paul in first, spends a several chapters in 1 Corinthians defining for us the nature of Christian ministry and is decidedly as simply being fellow workers with the gospel. Jesus is in the center. The word occurs, disciple occurs 268 times only in the gospels and acts, hence in the definition we have to include that. That's what we find in the gospels. Um, That's what we find in the New Testament. So we have to define it in that way. We've looked at terminology. You might think, well, we had a definition, but well, we're, we're not, that's a definition of disciple. What about discipleship, which is really the, the terminology we're using? And so we went to Grandma's Kitchen to just uh, sort of uh, get a good feel for what it takes to make cookies. And cookies take ingredients, <clears throat> and the right blend of essential ingredients will make a good cookie. And we have to remember that labels matter when you're dealing with ingredients that go into things, and We need to pay attention to labels, and we're trying to create labels. We create theological labels. Um, It's not bad to do that, but we have to just sort of, you know, consider what we're doing. Uh, Labels have to accurately represent what's in, well, the jars that they're labeling, if you're going to have a good outcome anyway. You start mixing ingredients, and it does not produce the results you were looking for. You start switching labels, and for sure, you won't be producing the results you're looking for. And so this is true with Christian, we call it doctrine, systematic theology, whatever you want to say it is. We have basic doctrines in the Bible. They're core ingredients of Christianity, core categories of thought, and core categories that define who God is. Remember, Christian doctrine is about the realities of God. You know, it's just an attempt to make statements and observations which are legitimate because the Bible is doing it about God. You know, the, the best way to do it is to sing it like we've been singing. Uh, but we need to uh, uh, remember that uh, these, are, these are things about God. These are real things. And <clears throat> so if we've got jars about uh, sanctification and such, that's great. But remember again, labels matter. They need to represent what's in the jar. What's in the jar needs to be in line with the label. And it's essential to clarity, to stability, and to unity. So these are important things. You start mixing uh, (coughs) things, especially you mix justification and sanctification, and you will make it to heaven, but you will have a really hard pathway. You will be up one day and down the next. You start mixing those things up. You start trusting how you're doing with God this week for for your justification, and you're going to be in trouble. You know, you just say, oh, I'm justified. I can do anything I want. You're going to be in real trouble. So, you know, it's, you don't want to mix these things up. And we don't want to switch price tags. It just brings uncertainty and confusion. So we have Christian doctrine, and we're considering discipleship as being one of these jars, and we need clarity and accuracy. Some labels sort of uh, come from Scripture. Justification is a terminology from Scripture. Sanctification is terminology from Scripture. Other labels are sort of emerge from Scripture, uh, emerge from really history, discussion, experience. The Trinity, discipleship, those are words. They, they, they are words that are composed from Scripture. They, they, are, they are not there on the surface of Scripture. We have to bring them out. 
And again, we've got to be careful that when we have these composed labels, we have to be careful that they, they don't take on a life of their own. Uh, starting to deal with uh, something I thought that was dead and gone, uh, theonomy and reconstructionism and postmillennialism. Some of you might think, oh, I know postmillennialism, but theonomy and reconstructionism, what are those things? Well, I don't even really know myself. I'm just trying to figure out what they're saying again. I used to know 30 years ago when I was in the wars over that stuff. But notice that Reconstructionism and Theonomy, they have no biblical definition to them. And yet they are in, in, there's this great debate and push to have the church adopt what's in the jars. And so it's, a, it's, it's categories that don't even exist really in the Bible. Um, and so labels matter. They just matter. Trinity is a great label. It's had a history, well-defined, has consensus. Discipleship, well, when you go out there and look at a definition, you start figuring out, it's like, yeah, well, there's, there's some good ingredients in there, but there's also some other ingredients that you're not sure of, and this person says it's this ingredient, and that person over there in ministry says it's that ingredient, and you start figuring out that, well, discipleship is pretty vague and ill-defined in the church today, and it would be really good for the church to to grab a hold of it and define it and come to consensus. So what is discipleship, which is our theme? It's personally following Jesus. These are going to be very similar to disciple, but we want to really sort of nail it down. Again, this is drawn from Scripture. Personally following Jesus as defined as divine Messiah, only Savior, and risen Lord. We just don't follow any old Jesus. We follow the Jesus presented in Scripture. I love the Gospels, Mark. How does it open? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the opening sentence. This is who we're addressing. Um, this, is, this is the definition of the person we're going to be presenting to you. So following Jesus as Messiah, Savior, Lord, according to his word, again, we're learners, in the dynamic of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is very much a part of the Gospels and very much a part of discipleship. Discipleship is not something you can do on your own, out of your own, I don't know, resources, I would say. You have to have the Holy Spirit. So last week or last time we talked about significance. Um, we started with significance, well, actually a couple times. We looked at Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30, where Jesus is there going, hey, I did all these works in all these cities, Capernaum and so on, and there was just so little belief, it's almost labeled as no one believed. And Jesus is not venting frustration, he's just making a statement. He's got disciples who are going to go through this. You're going to go and present the gospel, and you may not get the response you're hoping for. And so <clears throat> the apostle, or Jesus is, is saying, here's how you view these things when you when you invest in people and invest in, in presenting the gospel and you get little or no results, just remember it's based on the sovereignty of God, that this whole enterprise we're engaged in is a work of sovereign grace. Um, God makes himself known to a human being. This is core to discipleship. And Jesus makes this statement, all things have been handed over to me and my Father. He's the Messiah. He's the divine Messiah. When you hear something like this, you should think of the River Jordan where Jesus was installed as Messiah. 
the whole thing about the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus, again, I remember as, as a young Christian reading that, I was going, wow, I thought he was the Son of God. Why does he need the Holy Spirit? I had no clue about Isaiah or Jeremiah you know, or Ezekiel about this anointing of the Messiah with the Holy Spirit to invest him in his role and his mission as Messiah. And that's what was going on at the River Jordan. We should be thinking of Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, 10. We should be thinking of the Old Testament fulfillments at that River Jordan. And everything that follows is predicated on this. Jesus says, everything has been handed over to me by my Father. The Father loves the Son in John and has given all things into his hand. We follow Jesus, the divine Messiah. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one can comprehend the depths of the person of the Son of God, the eternal Son, except God, the eternal Father. He's the only one who fully knows his Son. And no one can know the depths of God, the Father, the eternal Father, except the eternal Son. This is that interpersonal knowledge in the Trinity, that interpersonal recognition, that interpersonal love. Everything that's there. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The only people who know God are Jesus and the people he shows God to. There's only people that know God. You cannot know God on your own. It's not an intellectual quest. It's, an, it's a coming to know the true and the living God in a personal way. And by the way, Jesus loves to show us the Father. If you're having a bad week, maybe even having a bad week, or you feel like you're not well-pleasing to God, just sit down and say, Lord, I'm just blowing it all week long. Please forgive my sin. And would you just show me the Father, because I'm just having a real rotten life. See, what, see if Jesus doesn't go, ah, yes, I want to do this. You're finally in the right place. You're finally meek and lowly in heart and ready to hear and know and rejoice in your Father. Jesus is one day going to present us to the Father. Again, you get into the millennial wars and everybody wants to latch on to 1 Corinthians 15, 26 and following for their cause. And I'm like, no. There's one day when Jesus... After that day of judgment, and all things are settled, Jesus being given that responsibility as Messiah to save all the people of God from their sin, from every generation, from every testamental era, if you will. This is all is done, all is settled. I've done my work, my Father, and he's going to turn. He's going to say, behold, the children you have given me, and will present us to God. That's going to happen one day. And uh, as things will happen, some of you have watched the movie Victoria, really great movie. Uh, Great series. I've loved it. But you'll see all the courtly stuff happening, right? And in the courtly stuff, when she became queen, then all these people had to come and get introduced to the queen, one by one. This is so-and-so. This is so-and-so. Well, I want to give you a heads up because you're, if you're nervous about being in public and doing something like that, which I am, uh, tough luck. 
uh, you're going to be presented personally to the Father. Jesus is going to come, and he'll be sitting there, perhaps. I'm just drawing a potential picture where he's there next to his father, and he goes, okay, bring Steve up. Steve's as nervous as a cat. Steve would rather be back there with the waiters than, than doing this, for sure. And he say, here's Steve, and the whole universe will be looking. Here's Steve, here's Gwen. Here's Yarrow, here's Dylan. We will each be introduced to the Father. It's going to be an amazing time. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Wills to reveal him. Everybody talks about free will, and this talks about another will. Another will is where salvation is found. And on the basis of this, on the basis of this, the most incredible thing a human being can ever have and attain to, fellowship with the living God, the knowledge of God himself, Come to me, everybody who's broken and weary, souls empty, heavy laden with guilt. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My brothers and sisters, you can't get a better definition of discipleship. This is what the word means. This is what we put into the jar. This is what we put into the jar first. It'll be at the bottom because it's the first thing that goes in. This is discipleship. The last time, actually, then we, we started with Jesus. And I know it's kind of a long introduction, but just want to have a reminder of where we're at. It's Matthew 16, and all the disciples are around, and Jesus had said, the, most of you are familiar with it, who do people say that I am? There's all these answers, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, just his personality, just always out there. Some of you have been blessed with a great personality. Some of you have been blessed maybe with a personality like Peter, always getting in trouble, you know. Always foot in mouth. It's because he loved Jesus Christ. I had to this week remind, remind myself and others that morality is not attached to your personality, it's attached to your character. And character is universal, personality is everywhere. And uh, so I don't want to judge people by personality, we tend to. We judge people by character, assess people by character. That's what God does. So who are you? Who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, great, again, he establishes flesh and blood is not revealed to this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And so that's why it says in Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem this is a must thing. This is not haphazard. This is not, oh, I think I'm going to just you know, travel to Jerusalem. It's a nice day. I have to go to Jerusalem, and I have to suffer many things. There's a purpose in this. There's an end in this. There's a goal in this. There's a mission in this. To suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and 
And everybody tends to forget because they're all focused on the words of what? You're going to do this? Suffer? You know, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be killed and be raised up the third day. Don't forget the positive. Don't forget the final outcome. Peter wasn't paying attention to the final outcome, and he took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid that this should happen to you. This shall never happen to you. Lord, what are you talking about? Peter could not comprehend because he really didn't understand the Old Testament at that point. He couldn't understand that Jesus had to die, had to happen. Isaiah 53, had to be accomplished. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. Ouch. Never want to hear that. But I'm going to tell you, how, much, how many times do we kind of you know, try to negotiate with the Lord about our version of how the life, our lives ought to go, how this ought to happen, what I ought to be doing? And we're always kind of telling the Lord, you know, i, I got a better idea than you on this matter. Now, it doesn't go this far. It doesn't go to deter, trying to deter Jesus from his mission. But, you know, like Peter, sometimes we uh, have our own opinions. And Jesus had to say, the reason you're trying to deter me from my mission, which is a really bad thing, is because you're setting your mind on God's interests, not on God's interests, but man's. So we start to get this idea that discipleship is a change in focus and interpretation of one's entire life. So this is where we are this morning. Just wanted to get everybody caught up, reminded. And let's pray to the Lord. We can finish this little section here this morning. Heavenly Father, we come again to your throne. We think of Lord, these are the the red letters of your son, we call them. Many of us have red-letter Bibles. and Lord, we know that all the letters in the Bible are from you. They're all spirit-inspired. They are all meaningful. Not one of them will ever fall or be changed. But Lord, we really just, you know, there's something about the red letters of Jesus, the actual words of our Lord that sort of touch our hearts in a way that some of the other places don't. And so we're on the red letters this morning, and Lord Jesus, you were there speaking these very words to your disciples, and they were recorded by the Holy Spirit in this infallible word so that we can hear them again from you. These are words that you said lots of things that weren't captured, did lots of things that were not captured in the Gospels, but these are the ones that you wanted captured to be presented down through the centuries to all your saints. And so, Lord, as we encounter them again this morning, let us remember that you're speaking to us. And, Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Make these words alive and real and powerful and significant to us. And we just ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, something I think I wanted to mention, I was discussing some things with folks yesterday. Like I say, I'm on the hunt to have to deal with the post-millennial wars, and I'm like, ah, why do I have to do this? But I have to, for certain reasons, I'm, there's going to be at the end of the month a, a presentation on the second coming, so I am supposedly have to pretend that I know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> but in that discussion, Jordan Peterson came up, and Jordan Peterson came up because well, Jordan Peterson, I like Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson summarizes all the crazy out there 
and all of the social justice wars and all the stuff going on, the culture wars, all those things, he reads the stuff and understands what I would spend weeks or months puzzling over, and he summarizes them, so I, I really like Jordan Peterson for that. But Jordan Peterson recently has stepped into expounding the Bible. And as I was discussing with someone about this, we both agreed that, that the, the picture is kind of sad, comical, if it wasn't so sad. Here is a man who's just amazing intellectual and who's very beneficial in areas and very helpful in things. But he's not born of God. He's claimed a, an encounter with God, but you just don't really hear the new birth of God in his words. And he's an intellectual, and I used to watch him before he really, you know, turned in the direction of, of that there's a God. I used to watch him on stage. He's sort of known for this. He gets asked a question, and he'll start to think things through right in front of you. And you're going, gosh, what wheels are turning in that old head? You know, it's, he's thinking everything through, trying to intellectually grasp and assimilate and, and state what he's thinking and, and hone his understanding. And he tries to do that with the Bible. And all we can think of to sort of illustrate it is think if you had a man who was blind. But you gave him the language of colors. And so he says, wow, colors. You know, I haven't really seen them, but I, I can grasp the concept of colors. And this man all of a sudden starts telling you about a sunset because he's heard it described. And so he can, he can tell you the colors of the sunset. But sadly, he's never seen them. And that's Jordan Peterson. He's trying to talk about a God he has yet to really see. And I always say that so you don't be carried away because the stuff he's adopted in his Genesis and Exodus expositions, he's trying really hard, but it's just really warmed over liberalism or updated liberalism or whatever. Um, nothing new. You can just about be predict it's predictable. I mean, he's eclectic, so he grabs a lot of things in kind of like the Da Vinci Code, grabbing stuff from everywhere to come up with a story. And I feel for him, but there's a whole generation following him. So just remember that. Well, Jesus had this encounter with Peter, and it was kind of a private discussion. I don't know how private it could be with everybody around, but at least it was off to the side. Sometimes we do that. We want to talk a little more privately, so we're not in the middle of everything talking. We go off to the side. So this is probably an off-to-the-side discussion. But then Jesus turns to everybody. No more private dialogue with Peter in general, but Jesus, this is now a general dialogue. And Jesus is reminding and clarifying things for his followers on the heels of having talked about what happens if you mind the things of men, the things of this world, the things of merely human understanding. He wants his disciples to, to understand some things. And he said, if anyone would come after me, again, he defines the essence of discipleship. It's following Jesus. Personally, this is over and over and over again. This opportunity is for anybody and everybody. And in a sense, it's indiscriminate. Anybody who wants to follow Jesus can follow Jesus. Then you run into sin. Whether you're rich or poor, you're young, you're old, you're nice, you're rotten. Or you're downright evil. Jesus says you can follow him. If you want to come after Jesus, 
You can do it. You're allowed to. He's inviting you. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, he's got to do some things. He's got to deny himself. He's got to take up his cross. He's got to follow Jesus. I was at uh, the doctor's a while back, and there's some, there's some things when you go to doctors, it's for things that are just more significant to older people. And so there's a bunch of older people in the room, so I figured I'd liven things up and start talking about God, because I had an opportunity. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things I've been, for several years now, I've been just indulging in, in science and astrophysics and things, because it, it interests me for a whole lot of reasons. But it also gives me something to talk about. <clears throat> Um, so I started talking about it, and the lady sitting beside me, she said, amen, that's who God is. God is the creator of this universe. I mean, it was a, it was a great thing. I forget what that was about. It was a, I'm just remembering what, what went down there, and I just thought it was really cool. We talked about 20 minutes. Oh. But we're all sitting around. I'm trying to make a joke with folks. You know, you want to be friendly. Let's get some conversation going because you're not going to be able to talk to people about God if you don't get a conversation going. I mean, you've got to mix it up. That's just your job, you know. Salt and light. If you want to be salt and light, mix it up. Mix it up with the world. Challenge things. You're probably in the end of your challenge. Most of the time you're going to go, well, I could have done that better or, well, that didn't work. But you're not going to get anywhere if you don't stir things up. You just aren't. Can't drive a parked car. Got to get that car moving. <clears throat> And so we were just talking about getting old, things old people talk about. I won't tell you all, you know, just put your, don't, don't listen, because it'll be yours and soon enough, all too soon. As Gwen's little saying goes, I thought getting old would take longer. One day you're going to say, yeah, that saying is true. Um, but one of the ladies, we were just talking about, you know, getting old, and she said, you know, getting old just isn't for sissies. It just didn't. Amen, some of you older people? <laughs> Chris? Hey, he's the one that said the old people go to the back at Christmas. <laughs> we still haven't worked that out yet. <clears throat> Getting old isn't for sissies. And discipleship is not for sissies. It's just not. If you're going to follow Jesus, here are the terms. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They are terms across the board. does not matter how old you are, how young you are, uh, what your station in life is, male, female, rich, poor, whatever. This is a mandate and a requirement for everybody. This is a picture of constant self-denial, of constant potential hardship. You have to deny yourself. You've got to take up a cross. You're going to follow Jesus. And this is not the fine print of discipleship. It's not the extra credit of discipleship. It's the bold print, the non-negotiable, fundamental paragraph that you're signing up for. And you don't get saved and then later sign up for discipleship. Getting saved is believing on Jesus and following him. It's one package. This is what it means to become a Christian. There's more to the gospel than just believe on Jesus. There's more to the gospel than just repent and believe on Jesus. 
The true, full message of the gospel is repent toward God, believe on Jesus, and follow Jesus all the days of your life. And in order to do that, it will not be possible to do that unless you are ready to deny yourself and take up your cross. This is the entry point. This is not where you arrive at a plateau. This is where you start. This is at the gate. This is at the entrance. But someone surely has said in these discussions, they've said, unless considerations. Aren't you presenting works, Steve? Aren't we justified by faith alone? Aren't you adding to the requirements to be saved? Well, of course justification is by faith alone. As a matter of fact, the one who said this is the one who's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to justify many. That's what I'm going there for. The author of justification by faith is the one speaking to us. And the confusion of saying, well, justification by faith, the confusion of that is, is that's, There's more to salvation than justification. Salvation is by grace, and part of that is a justification by faith. And the reason you have to be justified by faith is it's not possible to be justified in any other way. I always love the illustration. It's probably been around. Maybe he got it from somewhere, but there's a a preacher at a church we used to go to, and he was just one day talking about justification and seemed to roll off the tongue, so I thought it came from him. He said, when you get to justification, you just, you don't have anything to contribute to it. And he likened it to say, you know, here's, there's old Bill Gates. And if you want to, you know, put a $10 bill in the envelope and send it to Bill Gates and say, here, you know, let me help you out with 10 bucks. He's got all the money. He's the one with all the money. You're not going to help him out. And you're not going to help out justification by contributing good works to it, to justification. You just can't. You won't. There's nothing you can add to justification. There's nothing you can add to a justification that is perfect and complete, accomplished in 30 AD on a cross in Palestine. You cannot contribute to that. So that's why justification is by faith alone, because it's the only way it could ever happen. You're attaining a justification provided by someone else, and you just you can't add to it. You can't add to perfection. So Jesus is not here talking about justification. He's talking about salvation, and more importantly, he's talking about discipleship. Justification is absolutely free because it comes to you no other way, but discipleship is mandatory and it will cost you everything. Do you hear that? The Jesus that's going to freely give justification to all who come to him by faith tells you that to follow him is going to cost everything. This is not works. This is discipleship. Without it, no one will be saved. That's what we're going to see in the next verse. 
Now you've got to deny yourself to be a disciple. There's three components to this. You've got two decisive moments and one permanent commitment. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. Those are in a tense in the Greek, which means they are definitive events. They are somewhat of a moment in time. Time is not the factor so much as an, a, a simple accomplished thing. And then there's this permanent commitment of continual following. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross, and then you have to continually follow. In denying yourself, this is, a, this is a decisive moment in life that has its effects all the way through. Just like coming to Jesus is an ultimate turning from sin, it's a decisive moment. It's a turning toward God. Repentance toward God is the phrase in the scriptures. And faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a decisive moment. These are things that happen that put you on a pathway of continually being saved and following the Lord. But what is denying self? I'm sure our brother who does church history could elaborate on the rise of monasticism and the self-flagellations and all the things people have done as substitutes for simply denying yourself. Denying yourself is denying self-interest. It's saying self-interest is no longer going to control me. Self-significance is no longer going to be my ultimate pursuit. Self-fulfillment is not going to be the biggest deal in my life. Self-will is something I'm now going to relinquish. Deny himself. Now someone, it's, it's kind of interesting that someone might think, well, you know, that just means I've got to completely give up myself, almost like Buddhism, lose my personhood and all these other things that the Buddhists want. Don't listen to the, to the television or the whatever version, the, the media version of Buddhism. Buddhism, it's, it's a philosophy, number one, not a religion. And it says you just got to lose yourself, your entire humanity you have to personally dismantle. I tried it. <clears throat> that about near destroyed me. So Jesus is not saying that you are not a person with desires and hopes and purposes and all those things. What he is saying is that the center of your life, it's no longer about you necessarily. It's you, but you as part of a bigger framework of thought, of purpose, and commitment. Nothing wrong with wanting this or that. Nothing wrong with wanting, you know, a better job. Nothing wrong with wanting a nicer house. Nothing wrong with those things. But the gospel, discipleship, is going to come to each one of us with demands... <laughs> If you got two coats, give it to the guy who has none. As someone was saying the other day, that's kind of a complicated issue in America, but it's not complicated in Lebanon. And so there's nothing wrong with having the house or this or that, but then you have the demands of discipleship competing with personal interest. Personal interest isn't wrong in itself. 
But when the demands of discipleship, the demands of the gospel come to you, self-interest must give way to following Jesus and the bigger interests of the kingdom of God. So we're not monastics. I mean, the Lord says, hey, you're going to have a great life in the new heavens and the new earth. People talk about health and wealth here. (laughs) They're like way too low, shooting way too low. What we get in the new heavens and new earth is beyond description, cannot even be talked about. So it's not that God does not want us to have fulfillment. It's just that God knows that the fulfillment of self is a dark black hole. And the fulfillment of love and self-giving spirals upward into eternity. So we have to deny ourselves because of the demands of discipleship necessitate this. The new heart, the new life, the new purpose, the new space in which we live, the kingdom of God, and God is our Father and Jesus is our Lord. It's going to require that we are willing in this life to deny ourselves. You can't get around it. And it's decisive. It's not something you kind of work your way up to. You've got to have this mindset. Now, the outworking of it will happen, but you've got to start at the beginning going, I'm done with self. Self is just, it's already messed me up already. We're going to see a few things in a minute. You've got to take up your cross. Now, the picture here was very meaningful to these disciples. It's only meaningful to us if we, you know, see videos and such that depict what's going on. In Palestine, in that day, it was a familiar sight under Roman occupation to see people crucified. Now, some of you have different opinions about the chosen. I have my own. But there are a lot of benefits of the chosen. There are a few other things. It's like, I wish I didn't see that. I got to unsee that, but I don't know how. Um, Not because it's so bad, but it's like, I just don't want to have that opinion of Jesus or that perspective on Jesus. So it's not that it's horrible, it's just, eh, I'm thinking they kind of got a little bit loose in their drama here. But I remember then, it was at the beginning of one of them, and so you sort of almost get previews of the future. And Jesus is, looks like he's walking out of a city, maybe Jerusalem. And he's walking down the road and looking up as he sees several men just crucified, and he just stops and stares knowing that that was where he was going to be soon enough. It was, it was gripping. So the picture here is someone who has been beaten, condemned and beaten, and they are having to take their own cross, their own execution stake to the place where they're going to lay it on the ground They're going to take him or her. I I never saw women crucified, but I'm sure it happened. They're going to spread arms out. They're going to put nails in. They're going to grab feet. And they're going to slam nails in. And oops, I missed. This probably happened more than not. But carrying that cross to a place of execution, a place of death, 
There will be immense pain. There will be public shame. There will be a final exit from this world. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have a cross to carry. For some, it will be an actual real one. For most of us, it's metaphorical of the things that we have to endure and give up in this life for the sake of the gospel. Taking up your cross. Are you ready to do that? Because if you're not ready, you won't make it as a disciple. Other places, Jesus said, count the cost. This is the cost. If you're not ready to pay it, you will not make it. Justification is free. Discipleship costs you everything. And we're to follow Jesus. We can no longer do that physically. If we could only do that, you know, in Palestine around 30 to 33 A.D. But we, 2,000 years later, can follow him spiritually. We can have personal knowledge and communion with God through the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like what John 13 through 17 was all about. I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit is coming in my place, and you're going to know me in a way you cannot know me now. And so if you can start looking back, say, oh, I was with the disciples, you know, I wish I could be back there and walk around with Jesus in Palestine. It would be good, but watch The Chosen. It's probably as close as you're going to get. Um, and, but having the Holy Spirit is far more. We follow him spiritually. We follow his words and how, what we believe and how we live and where we put our hope. We follow Jesus as revealed. We don't follow institutions. We don't follow traditions. And we don't follow popular ministries. We don't. We follow Jesus. And again, these are the non-negotiable terms of discipleship. When you turn to Christ in many places... Some of us feel it, but in many places the culture will demand that, that family will become hostile, friends will leave you, you will be subject to denigration, to antagonism, to even physical persecution. You will have opposition from every dimension of the social order. Are you ready for that? Because if you're not, you won't make it. You just won't. And Jesus goes on to say, you're... <clears throat> Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. We're not masochists. We do this for a purpose. Again, don't forget the positive. Whoever would save his life, this is sort of an, an, an ironic, futile purpose. If you're trying to save your life, grasping after all the things of the world to fill your life with, you're going to end up chasing the wind because it will always be in front of you. You will never ultimately capture that self-satisfaction that the world promises. Whoever would save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We don't lose our lives for nothing. God's not a masochist. God's not mean. My brothers and sisters, we're in a spiritual war. When you look at astrophysics and you see, okay, here's, here's the Milky Way. We're this little nothing little dot out on one of the little nothing little mediocre arms and it's a mediocre galaxy and there are billions of galaxies out there. 
And you know where God's mind and heart is every moment, all the time? He may look out and go, wow, this is a really cool universe, but you know what he's concerned about right now? That one little speck, that blue little planet where all of his children are fighting the war that cannot even be described in its intensity and power and outcome. Things of this life just don't matter that much. Things of eternity do. And we have to lose things in this life, and we're doing it for Jesus. And so when God lays a hard experience on you, what is your response? God, you're being mean? Or are you like, I get to do this for the Lord? It's for the Lord I'm doing this. You see, if Gwen wants me to do something, you know, she could go and say, well, you know, everybody else mows the lawn, why aren't you? Or she, and I'd probably go, well, I'm not everybody else. But if she says, well, I want you to mow the lawn for me, I'm like, ah, okay, now I'm stuck. I got to do it. It's for Gwen. It's not just because it needs to be done. And so when you're going through life and you're going through hard times and things like that, just go, well, gosh, God, God has come and revealed his son to me. I think he loves me. Doesn't feel like it, but I think he has. And the things that God is asking me to be a part of or endure, well, wow, I'm doing this for Jesus. And it just makes it worthwhile. And Jesus asked the rhetorical question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. What is your soul worth to you? That soul is that inner you, that inner being that's stuck in your body, localized here. You look out your eyes and, you know, the soul that, that interacts with the world. And you know that you are more than your body. You just know that. Everybody with any sense knows that. Only the atheists or the modern scientists to, to uh, try to establish their, their godless, soulless universe say it's not true. Everybody knows you have a soul. You have something that makes you, you. That soul was made in the image of God. That soul was made to know the living God. That soul is, is of inestimable worth. And what will it profit you for a few short years to gain even the world but forfeit what your soul was made for? Forfeit is a term that's out of sort of, a, it's an economic term, it's a business term, it's about money. And so to forfeit means to, to lose, to lose money, to lose something valuable. You have a soul. That soul is given to you by God. It's a unique personal possession. It's your responsibility to manage it, to keep it, as is your body. It's unique to you. But are you trading things in? What are you you trading? Are you trading things in now? Paul says, Our light of fiction, which is but for the moment, works for us more and more an eternal weight of glory. Are you trading things of this world in now? For the eternal weight of glory. 
Are you misvaluing things? You have a soul, that soul is eternal. There's some that want to say it's not eternal, that's going around again. Again, all the things you thought were beaten down are just rising back up. To lose your own soul is to lose something that's eternal. To lose your own soul is a massive loss, it's a catastrophic loss, it's a loss that cannot be recovered. To lose your soul means to, well, the terms, other terms in the Bible talk about outer darkness. We know there's terms about fire and punishment and pain, but that's nothing. Nothing compared to outer darkness. When a human soul designed for God, living in God's world right now and with common grace, when a human soul is finally cast into outer darkness, when God gives people what they've wanted all their lives, I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want God in my life. And God finally in the day of judgment says, I'm going to give you what you wanted. And as that soul is moving out into some eternal space, I can't, wouldn't know what it is. If it's a black hole, God only needs one as big as a basketball to drop the whole human race in. So, As a person recognizes that they are being cast away from God forever, God, the source of light, the source of joy, the source of meaning, the source of significance, the source of anything and everything that makes a human being human. Losing your soul. What will a person give in return for your soul? What will you give? If someone said to you, I'll give you a million dollars to jump off a cliff n- next month and die, what are you going to do? Like, well, I really like the million bucks, but too high a price. But people will trade in eternity for trinkets. And how do, what, what are we supposed to be looking for here? Jesus is saying that behind what I'm telling you is something that you must take to heart. The Son of Man is going to come. This Son of Man that's going to go to Jerusalem and be murdered by the religious establishment joined up with and hooked up with the governmental establishment. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? That's what Psalm 2 is being fulfilled there as they're crucifying Jesus. The world comes together, people become friends that weren't friends before. The one who's going to Jerusalem to die, that Peter said it'll never happen, the one that's going there to die on a cross, he is one day going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Don't forget the positive. Jesus endured the cross, it says, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God because he knew the end of the matter.
Satan had told him, hey, trade in your soul for, I'll give you this stuff for now. Jesus said, no, I'm following God my Father. And Jesus knew that the outcome of suffering on his cross, of taking up his own cross and dying on that cross, he knew the outcome. The Son of Man from Daniel will come with his angels in the glory of his Father. There's a cross and then there's glory. The same for us. An eternal weight of glory. And at that point he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. Yes, you will be judged for what you've done. You'll be judged for every word spoken. Weigh your words and your decisions. But there's an outcome. And so if we, as believers, we want to follow Jesus, and Jesus says you've got to take up your cross, and that doesn't mean you're going to have a miserable day every day, it just means there's going to be demands that are going to come in collision with you. Remember that there's an eternal weight of glory beyond that. When we're in the new heavens and the new earth, and people who really took this seriously and did not let the world get to deter them from their calling, and they're being brought up to the Father by Jesus, and Jesus is recognizing what this person has done and accomplished in the kingdom and what that person has done. And you start going, ah, I wished I would have recognized this day and thought more of this day and had it factor into my decisions and my purposes Son of man's coming back. We are going to give an account of our lives. And my purpose here is not only to get myself there and have a good report. Me and Chris are here to make sure you get there with a good report. That's our goal. You know, we're not here to make a living because we don't. If we were here to make a living, we'd be, I'd be skinny. You know, maybe that's what I need to do. We're not here to do our own thing. We're not here with our own egos. We just, it's not what we're here for. As I say all the time, and I hope you memorize it, we're not here to run the show. We're just here to make sure the show runs well and that you get to heaven holy and without blame. That's what we care about. So when we say things, when we teach things, when we preach things, we're not perfect, we're not flawless, but that is our goal. And please always remember that and assess us in that way. There's a day of judgment for everybody. What are you going to exchange for your soul? Have you determined in your life you're going to follow Jesus no matter what the cost? That's what's put before us in this passage. And this is true discipleship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and Lord, we think of Jesus walking around Palestine, a third world country in a third world world. We couldn't even imagine living in a place like that with all of the lack of what we would call infrastructure, of plumbing, of things like that. And Jesus told them not to trade the meager things, at least as we see them, the meager things they had, 
Not to trade them in for anything. Not to trade their souls for them. Not to put their hope in them. And Lord Jesus, you know with every one of us, we, we have to become God-centered and not self-centered, and that's a process. It has a decisive starting point, but Lord, it's a process all our lives. More and more recognizing, more and more acknowledging, more and more making decisions and ordering our lives and aligning our, our lives and our decisions with the kingdom of God. And Lord, anything you ask of us, we know you're not asking it of us because you're just wanting to be mean. How often when, when things, hardships come into our lives, we start squawking, we start complaining, we start moaning, we start thinking all the thoughts, and there's Satan just giving us the song sheets of pity to sing from, and sometimes we take those sheets up. Lord, give us the sense that uh, we're your disciples. You care about every one of us. Um, Lord, this is where all your focus is. It's on your saints right now. There'll be an eternity when we're out there in that universe. We have no idea what we'll be doing, but uh, it's a big place. There may be a new one, whether this one's just renewed or whether there's a brand new one out there. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be big. Lord, you only ask us that for now, for here, that we live unto you and suffer hardship with the gospel as you require it. We don't need to invent hardships. Some of us try to do that, thinking it's spiritual. It's not. But Lord, the hardships that we truly do have to endure, that you truly do lay on us, Lord, let us embrace them with joy and with a sense of privilege that we get to do it for you. How many people get to do that? People will flock to see an important person, to, to see Elon Musk or to see the president or something like that. Because they're important people in the world, how much more should we not flock to you, the most important human being in the entire universe? We have that privilege. We can come to you every day on our knees. We can come to you every day in prayer. We can come to you every day in singing. We can come to you every day in acknowledgement. We get to do that. So Lord, let us always recognize what our privilege is and with that privilege comes requirements and responsibility and there's a price tag to discipleship. Lord, let us look at that price tag and say to ourselves, gosh, this is cheap. You mean just for this, for this, just doing this and giving up this, I get to have eternity? Huh, done deal. Um, Done deal with you, Lord. And thank you for all my brethren here. Thank you that this message is, by and large, one they already know in their own lives. And I just pray, Lord, you would bless us that we continue in it, that we don't give up halfway through or three-quarters of the way through, but we stay true to you to the end. And we ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. Amen.